Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. And as we always do, we have a theme that ties our podcast together, uh, four of them. And this time we've been talking to Preston Ship, who was with us last time, who is from the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, uh, started in 2009, located in Washington, D.C., but their reach is all across the country, and their purpose is to work um, for justice for juveniles in our system, um, so many of whom have gotten not just life without parole, but very, very long sentences. And this is an issue that needs to be looked at across the country. And that is Preston's job. So welcome, Preston, back to Pursuing Justice. Thank you very much. All right. So we, we talked last time about many things. Uh, you were a prosecutor and you have done, a, I guess you could say, a, a 180. <laughs> and you are now uh, legal counsel. Is that your your title? Technically, the title is Senior Policy Counsel. Policy Counsel, right. Okay, I didn't have my notes right in front of me. Um, so we talked a little bit about how you uh, got to make that decision, and I would encourage my listeners to hear part one. So today, um, we want to talk more about um, exactly what you do uh, in this position to um change these terribly draconian sentences that are given to children. Uh, and as you said in the last uh, podcast, um, we are the only country that gives sentences like this. And I, whenever I hear that, and I've heard it so many times, I, I say to myself, why are we the only country? Why aren't we leading the charge rather than um, having to look at what we're doing and compare ourselves to other countries and say, we come up short. Why, why is it we are slow to make the change? Yeah, uh, that's a, man, that's a great question. And, and I wish I had a, a good answer. You know, I think for whatever reason, we live in the United States uh, in just a very punitive country. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't. I don't say that to be like down. I think it's just a fact uh, that that we have somehow uh, sort of internalized this idea that there's just not a problem that we can't punish our way out of. <laughs> so whether you're talking about poverty or homelessness, uh, addiction, mental illness, you know, we we have just used this punishment model, um, thinking that you know. Uh, retribution and violence is redemptive and and other countries again for whatever reason i'm not a sociologist i don't know um they just they seem to have a very different approach i know that in in a country like denmark for example if somebody is locked up in denmark for more than 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. that represents a horrible failure of of denmark's system of justice because they are investing heavily in making sure that that in 10 years that person is ready to roll they are ready to go and be productive and 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 successful and they don't have to worry about that person anymore 
And for us, it seems like we define success in how long can we keep this person locked up? So I think we just have, have to have some fundamental paradigm shifts, really. You know, we can't just think that, that the, the whole substance of the work is tinkering on things here and there, as if once juvenile life without parole is gone, you know, everything's going to be fine. You know, and I think there's some basic underlying assumptions that are causing us problems that we need to deal with. Uh, you mentioned Denmark. What about Norway capping a sentence at 21 years? Mm-hmm. And there was that young man who killed all those teenagers for no reason at all. Shocking crime. And the most he will get is 21. Yes, they do evaluate him at the end of that time and see, where are you? Have you, um, do you have remorse? Have you changed your, your attitude? But um, that, that is so far from a, a life without parole sentence. It is. It is. And again, I think that a lot of Americans would see that and that just represents some sort of uh, huge miscarriage of justice for them. Uh, but, I, you know, my position is only if you're defining justice in terms of punishment, if you're defining justice in terms, you know, of restoration, in terms of healing, in terms of trying to make something right where it has gone terribly, terribly wrong. You know, then the Scandinavian countries and New Zealand and Japan, you know, and all of these other cultures seem to have a a much better hold. And I think if we're true to our own best values, uh, that that justice as punishment model breaks down, too. You know, so I don't I think we can look to our own. I think we can look to our faith traditions, uh, you know, when when um, when the prophet Amos talked about, you know, a time, you know, when justice will, will roll down like mighty waters. I don't think he was talking about long prison sentences, you know, and, and it's in the Christian scriptures as well. You know, all our great faith traditions talk about redemption and second chances and mercy and forgiveness. And if that's what you're preaching about and praying about and singing about on Saturday or Sunday, mm-hmm. I don't see how then you go forward with these policies Monday through Friday that are, that are just based on punishment and suffering and hopelessness, even for children. I mean, we're talking about people who are, you know, we recognize in other areas of the law how different they are. We don't let them vote. We don't let them sign a contract. We don't let them serve on a jury or in the army or get married or, you know, buy tobacco because they're different. And so we protect them. We, we recognize that they have diminished capacity to appreciate, you know, all of these things. You know, a car rental agency won't rent a car to you till you're 25. Because they know. And yet we will pretend that a a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old is just as culpable as a a fully grown adult. And we will throw them away. And and it's it's great. When you start really digging into it, it's, it's crazy. And so it has got to stop. And I appreciate you taking the time to try to help people understand that this is happening and it has got to stop. On, on uh, the campaign's website, uh, there's a statement, and it says, no child is born bad. Can you speak to that a little bit? That, that phrase uh, came about um, our, our co-director, Xavier McElrath Bay, who is himself formerly a former uh, juvenile 
who was who was given a lengthy adult sentence when he was 13 years old. Um, he came up with that phrase, no child is born bad. Um, and I think what what he wanted to get at, you know, and of course, he has his own story to tell. And, and it's, it's, of course, full of trauma and, and it's heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, Xavier and, and, and others like him, um, they, they were born the same way as any of us. They, they're not bad. They never were. You know, the, the language, you know, about super predators that was sort of popularized in the 1990s uh, is terribly inappropriate um, to say about a human being because we're all born with the, the potential to do great good. And I think what Xavier and the campaign are trying to get at with that phrase is that we should never lose sight of the, the incredible potential that we all have to, to do good, to contribute, you know, um, if, if we're not given up on, you know, if, if we will nurture hope, then you'll see people like Xavier cultivate that within themselves and go on to do incredible things like he has. And so I think it's sort of a signal to sort of our inherent capacity for goodness that, that we can't ever have a policy in place that denies that. But it's also, I'm going to go one step further. It's Beyond goodness, it's the idea of a second chance that children are redeemable. And that's right. That isn't the message if we're saying, well, we're going to give you a sentence where you will never get out of prison. And the only way you're going to get out is in a box. That's right. So, that's right. And so one of the one of my other colleagues at the campaign, Eddie Ellis, when he was sentenced as a 16-year-old his sentencing judge called him a menace to society. And he said, the only thing that we can do for you is to, to throw you away basically. And Eddie did 10 years in solitary confinement. And, and he is now um, sort of leading the charge for the campaign in investing in self-care for formerly incarcerated kids to make sure that they're taking care of themselves and, and getting the services, you know, that they need. Eddie was given the opportunity a few years ago to speak on a panel at Georgetown Law School, and his sentencing judge was also on the panel and brought the pre-sentence report that he had used to throw Eddie away and sat there and told that crowd at Georgetown, he said, I want everyone to hear this. And he read from it. He said, we called you a menace to society. And I want everybody here to, to understand that was wrong. Mm. And we never should have said that. That's incredible. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind when we hear that phrase, no child is born bad. Right. That you don't know when somebody is 16 years old, what they're going to be when they're 30. And we've got so many examples, you know, of, of that. How can you know that? You can't. Right? Yeah. yeah. So we, I wanted to... Um, talk a little bit about uh, some of the past decisions the Supreme Court made wherein uh, sentencing for children is concerned. And maybe you can run down them uh, quickly so we can educate our listeners. Sure, sure. So we've, we've been really fortunate um, that the U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in uh, in a number of cases um, that basically deal with, you know, how children are treated in the, the criminal justice system. Um, and so, you know, starting 
um, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, you know, you had this, the court weighing in and saying that the death penalty is no longer constitutional. Used to, you know, you could give the death penalty to a child, to a 15-year-old, you know, but in, in uh, Roper versus Simmons, the court said, uh, and, and that was in 2005, the court said, no, you can't, you can't uh, give the death penalty to a kid. And then you had the Graham decision a few years later that said that you can't give life without parole in a non-homicide case, you know, and so here we see it gets a little bit tighter. And then the big one for us, well, that the Graham decision was huge too, but but the big one for us really was uh, Miller versus Alabama in 2012. And what the court said there, it was looking at a sentencing scheme where if a, if a person, even a child committed a certain crime, the mandatory automatic sentence was life without the possibility of parole. And the court looked at that in Alabama uh, and said, no, no, life without parole cannot be a mandatory automatic sentence because uh, there has to be an opportunity for these peculiar characteristics of kids to be taken into account. Okay. Um, which was huge because you had a number of states around the country who did have mandatory life without parole for kids that uh, immediately needed to change their laws. And then four years later in Montgomery versus Louisiana, um, you had the court look at the issue again because the question remained, you know, well, is this just a rule going forward that it can't be mandatory? Or is this a situation where any time it's ever been mandatory, we have to, to uh, re-sentence that person? And that's what the court said in, in Montgomery. It said, yep, this is retroactive. Anybody who got mandatory life without parole as a kid needs to be re-sentenced so that you can take their youth into account. And so we saw states like Louisiana, where that case uh, originated, um, Pennsylvania really did get on the ball with resentencings. And a lot of people who had been given life without parole uh, instead got maybe term of years sentences, and a lot of people were able to come home. And then in a lot of states, they, they looked at what the court had, had done. They learned about the brain science, you know, about how our brain is not fully developed until we're in our mid-20s, which leads to all sorts of issues, impulse control and we're more susceptible to peer pressure. We don't think through the consequences of our conduct. All these things parents of teenagers know um, the science is kind of caught up to. And these states start looking at it and they say, you know what? We shouldn't be sentencing kids to life without parole. So even a state like Texas, you know, which you think I was being super tough on crime, uh, West Virginia uh, in 2014, you know, and, and Arkansas, all these states, you know, looked at it and said, you know, we need to get this off the books. We don't need to be sentencing kids to die in prison. Um, so very, very helpful decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Really exciting to see all those states fall in line. The most recent decision um, that we had uh, over the summer, um, basically uh, the, the Jones versus Mississippi case, and what the court was looking at there um, was, okay, should we expand this even further, you know, and say that either that you can never get life without parole if you're a kid, which of course is exactly what the campaign um, is, is trying to do all over the country, or at least should we make the trial judge make certain findings before imposing life without parole against a kid. And, and this is the, the decision where the court kind of said, we're not going to go any further than we've already gone. You know, we've said everything we're going to say about this, 
a lot of states are already passing these kinds of laws. So the court did not ban it outright. And the court did not say that there's certain, you know, findings, you know, that, that, that there's certain hoops that the judge has to jump through. They basically said, you need to make sure that you take these factors into account, uh, but we're not going to take it any further. You know, which, of course, was disappointing. We would have loved to have seen the court go a step further and say, you know what, given what we know about kids, you should never sentence them to die in prison. Um, but they, they didn't want to take that next step. Um, however, in writing the opinion, Justice Kavanaugh explicitly noted how many states were already passing this, this kind of legislation and basically invited that trend to continue. Um, and so that's what we're really pushing for, you know, in the states, you know, where we're working right now, you know, we still have so many arrows in the quiver, so many arguments that we make uh, about why this is, why this is improper, um, you know, why it flies in the face, you know, of what we know about kids and, and, you know, the other things that we've already kind of talked about, um, you know, that we should not look at the Supreme Court holding in Jones and, 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 and wash our hands of it and say, okay, you know, well, we're, everything is fine now. It's not. It's not because we've still got a lot of people in states like Michigan uh, who who maybe have been resentenced to life without the possibility of parole, even if they had uh, really, really uh, compelling evidence that they have changed. You know, so we want to make sure that, that people get those opportunities, understanding that some folks are not going to get out of prison, you know, in a state like Arkansas, which passed its legislation uh, way back in 2017, they're only paroling about 60% of the people who come up for review. So that means the parole board is looking, you know, at 40% and saying, you know, we don't feel good about, about your release. You know, there's things in your, in your history maybe, or whatever it is, and they're denying them parole, uh, which is sad. But at the same time, what that means is that the people who are getting out are doing exactly what we want them to do. And there was a recent study um, by some folks up at Montclair State University that found among former juvenile lifers, the rate of reoffending when they get out is 1%. That out of this huge study, there were two people who had committed a new offense, neither of which was a violent offense. And so we can feel great about these legislative changes that are, that are giving hope uh, to people um, of, of maybe being able to, to have a life one day outside prison. Montclair uh, is where I studied and got my master's degree. I didn't know about that study. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, hey, we we uh, we are so grateful that they put in the time yeah. um, to 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 get those numbers together because boy, that's you know that's so helpful going forward to be able to say, look, you're you're not going out on a limb here. Yeah. You know, what maybe West Virginia was way back in 2014. They they didn't know how well this was going to work. But now that we've got so many states, over half the states have passed this kind of legislation and nobody is having problems with letting the wrong people go. Nobody's getting out and, and committing new violent offenses. Uh, and so we really can feel good uh, about these sorts of policy changes that are being implemented. But according to the sentencing project, there are still over 14, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, 1,400 uh, children juveniles who are still serving that sentence of life without parole. Uh, why, uh, you know, what's the, what's the barrier in the state say that you're working in, um, in terms of turning that uh, around and, and abolishing life without parole? 
Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think every state is a little bit different. You know, I think that in some states uh, they have rarely used life without parole as a mm -hmm. sentencing option for kids. And so, you know, they may only have, uh, you know, four or five or six or seven people and, and they just don't see it as, as a really urgent need, you know, maybe this isn't something we need to worry that much about. Um, but I think there's other states, you know, where they just, um, they really, really want to be perceived as being tough on crime, mm -hmm. even if the person who committed the crime was too young to drive a car. Uh, and I think that what what I would say, you know, in those in those situations is that if you if you really pay attention to this trend, it's being led by conservatives. You know, as I mentioned, you know, states like Arkansas and Texas and West Virginia and Ohio uh, and Wyoming and the Dakotas are never going to be accused of being soft on crime. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not bastions of, of, of progressive ideals. Um, what they are is people, you know, with some conviction, uh, they're, they're, you know, a lot of folks there, you know, go to church and sing about Jesus loving the little children. And I think if, if you connect those values to this issue, you know, what you see is conservatives leading the way. Uh, I think it's why in a state like Ohio, you know, once we were able to get there and have conversations, introduce the voices of people who, who have been, you know, have served these kinds of sentences. That's why the Senate president, uh, when it came for a floor vote, he took the microphone and he said, we're a nation that believes in second chances. Uh, this is very conservative Republicans and we believe in second chances. Um, he cited the first step act. You know, he right. said a, a lot of, a lot of where this went wrong happened, not under a tough on crime conservative. It happened during the nineties you know, with the crime bill that, that Bill Clinton worked right. on and stuff. And, and Hillary Clinton was the one who popularized the, the super predator myth that there's this new wave of children who are incapable of remorse or rehabilitation. Um, so I think a lot of the, the conservatives can look at something like the First Step Act that was bipartisan that President Trump signed into law and say, well, this is about being smarter about crime, not not being soft on crime, but smarter about crime and there's a reason it was called the First Step Act. You know, it wasn't the only step. And so I think that there's a lot of places, uh, Tennessee, where I live, just passed the Senate, just passed overwhelmingly uh, a bill to take Tennessee's life sentence um, that's right now at 51 years and put it back at 25 years where it was in the 80s and early 90s before all of this tough on crime stuff really caught on. And of course, Tennessee is a Republican supermajority state. Um, but people recognize that, you know, there's more steps to take. Um, and so this this is something, you know, where I feel like, you know, we, we do have a lot of Democrats who support it. Um, and, and certainly love working with them. Um, but, you know, conservatives have done a great job in leading in some of these states. Hmm. Are there long, we're almost out of time and we, we've certainly covered this topic well. Are, are there long term goals uh, other than what? we have already talked about that the campaign has, uh, up, you know, in the future. Well, I think as long as any state has life without parole on the books for kids, we're going to be focused on that. Right. How, however, as, as, as we've seen more and more states pass this kind of legislation, what we're now seeing 
is states like uh, like uh, Rhode Island and uh, well, in the District of Columbia, where the campaign headquarters is, we see them saying, well, you know, if this works for 17 year olds, it probably will work for 21 year olds as well. And so we're seeing them take the brain science even more seriously and expand release opportunities for what we would call youthful offenders. Uh, and so I think, you know, a lot of the work that we do um, can be sort of a catalyst uh, to, to, uh, to more extensive criminal justice reform. Um, I think the fact that, you know, we, we are focused on racial equity, you know, is something that we want to continue to, uh, to pursue because that's such an important component of criminal justice reform generally. Are you optimistic as you look ahead? I really am. I mean, there's times, you know, when, when you despair, you know, when things mm -hmm. don't go your way, but this has been such a dramatic positive trend. When you think about death penalty work and, and decades after decades after decades of trying to make progress there, this has been a very dramatic trend away from these sorts of sentences for kids. And so there's, there's so much to celebrate, you know, even in the past two years, since I've been with or two and a half years with the campaign, we've seen four states uh, abolish life without parole for kids. So I think there's a, a lot of reason to be hopeful about this. I think we're connecting with some of our best values here. People can feel good about that. What are those four states? It was Oregon and then Virginia and then Ohio and then Maryland. All right. And we've seen some other bills passed elsewhere that maybe are not quite as comprehensive. Um, but well, uh, Missouri, for example, passed a bill that uh, said that anybody under 18 who is not serving a sentence for capital murder or first degree murder is parole eligible after 15 years. And already uh, Bobby Bostick, who was serving a 241 year sentence for a crime he committed when he was 16, has already been granted parole there. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you hear those stories and you think, okay, we're moving in the right direction. Sounds good. Well, Preston, I really appreciate your time. Uh, this last two podcasts and uh, look forward to meeting uh, Catherine Jones, who is uh, your colleague at the campaign. She has a unique story to tell us. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your passion in this uh, very, very important topic. I thank you. I thank you as well. All right. And thanks for listening. This is Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.